Well, good afternoon to everybody. Thank you so much for gathering with us for the annual Thomas Aquinas Lecture. I uh, wanted to also give a special welcome to the one on sabbatical who usually is organizing this. This is uh, Dr. Cutterback in the front row here. And actually, uh, Dr. Spazano uh, teaches up at Providence College with uh, Dr. Cutterback's brother, is it Matthew? Yes. So Dr. Matthew Cutterback. So she does have a lot of familiar faces after being with uh, Dr. Flippin, who was on sabbatical up at Providence in, in the fall. Welcome back to, to Dr. Flippin, and who has been graciously looking out for uh, Dr. Spazano as well. And so if you'd allow me to introduce uh, Dr. Dara Spazano, we're, we're very pleased to welcome her. It sounds like this is the first time in Christian College. So we've got to bring her back in the May and summer so she can enjoy all the beautiful green and flowering trees. So Dr. Spazano is an associate professor of theology at Providence College in Providence, Rhode Island. She holds a PhD in theology from the University of Notre Dame and a master's in liturgical studies from the Liturgical Institute. Her book, The Glory of God's Grace, Deification According to St. Thomas Aquinas, was published by Sapientia Press in 2015. Recent publications include articles in Nova et Vedra, Cistercian, Cistercian Studies, and Antiphon. And so, if you would give a warm Christian welcome to Dr. Darius Pizarro. so much, um, Dr. Takanikos, for this invitation and this welcome. Um, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. I've always wanted to visit Christendom. Um, so thank you very much for your welcome. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy your consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thomas Aquinas' biographers record that receiving viaticum in the last days of his life with devotion and tears, he made an eloquent profession of his Eucharistic faith and love. Asked whether he believed the consecrated host to be truly the Son of God who came forth from the womb of the Virgin, hung on the arms of the cross, died and was raised on the third day for us, St. Thomas answered, I truly believe and know for certain that this is true God and, and man, the Son of God the Father and of the Virgin Mother, and so I believe in my soul and confess in words what is stated by the priest about this most holy sacrament. I receive you, price of the redemption of my soul. I receive you, viaticum of my pilgrimage. For the love of whom I have studied, kept vigil, and labored. You I have preached and taught. I have never said anything against you. Thomas shifts in the second half of his profession to the familiar second person. As he receives the Eucharist, he speaks to it, not in its appearances as sacrament, but in its reality as Christ himself, union with whom is the only desired reward for all of Thomas's earthly labors. His prayer is the grateful consummation of a well-attested lifelong devotion to Christ present in the Eucharist, 
William of Taco reports that at the elevation during mass, Thomas had the habit of weeping as he addressed the Lord directly by reciting the second part of the Te Deum. From you, O Christ, are the King of glory, through its ending plea for redemption and heavenly fulfillment. Come then, Lord, and save your people, bought with the price of your own blood, and bring us with your saints to glory everlasting. His final prayer to Christ present in the Eucharist reveals a depth of desire, which can sometimes be glimpsed even in his academic writings on the sacrament. Perhaps it is no coincidence that Thomas, on his deathbed, is also said to have given a brief commentary on the Song of Songs, that book of scripture traditionally understood to be a dialogue of love between Christ and his church, or the individual soul, although no written record of these words exists. Dennis Turner, among others, considers this implausible. In Turner's view, the song is not Thomas's style. That's a quote. For Aquinas chooses the love of friendship over Eros as a model for Christian love, unlike the majority of medieval theologians. Nevertheless, Thomas does refer to texts from the Song of Songs in a number of places throughout his works, and especially in the context of discussions related to charity. Whether or not Thomas actually gave his deathbed commentary, it's worth asking whether his reflection on the song might have contributed at least an element of Eros to his theology of charity, and therefore to his understanding of the Eucharist as the sacrament of charity. I will argue that it did, and that we can see this influence especially in his view of the Eucharist as the sacrament that inebriates, enkindles, and deifies us by the fire of divine love. Now, I always tell my students that when they present a paper, they have to start by giving a clear roadmap of their argument so their listeners will have something to cling to um, as they follow along. So here's my roadmap. First, I will try to demonstrate that there is an element of eros in Thomas's theology of charity, and that we can see this in his use of certain texts from the Song of Songs. Second, I will explain what difference this element of eros makes in Thomas's view of how charity deifies and incites us into Christ-like action, especially through reception of the Eucharist. And I will conclude by arguing that eros operates in Thomas's theology of charity in a distinctively Dominican mode. But let me, like a good Thomist, begin with an objection. Thomas Aquinas is rightly noted for his original analysis of charity as a kind of friendship with God in which he draws from both scripture and Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. In this, he is sometimes presented as an exception to the rule of medieval reflection on Christian love, which Dennis Turner has argued was significantly shaped by an allegorizing exegesis of the Song of Songs, quote, exuberant celebration of Eros, as well as the influence of pseudo-Dionysian Neoplatonism, which provides a language of Eros for the ecstatic mutual yearning of the transcendent God and his creation towards each other. Turner and other scholars agree that Thomas did not draw on the erotic song tradition in any significant way. One even goes so far as to say that he seems to show a reluctance to use it in his works, which exhibit none of the explicit passion of the song." Another quote. The Western spiritual tradition of commentary on the Song of Songs is erotic, then, in that it celebrates the yearning, fervent desire for union 
between God or Christ and his members. And with this tradition, it seems, Thomas's treatment of charity has little to do. Fergus Kerr argues that this was actually an important development on Thomas's part. In Kerr's view, Thomas dramatically revised his understanding of charity between the early scriptum on the sentences and the Summa Theologia through his renewed study of the Nicomachean Ethics. In doing so, he moved away from an account in the scriptum that, quote, if it does not exactly reek of sublimated eroticism, nevertheless has a certain Neoplatonic redolence. I'll leave you to imagine the British accent. In his definition of charity as friendship in the scriptum, Thomas encompasses multiple terms from the tradition, including the notion of amatio, which Thomas says here adds to a more, a certain intensio and fervor, as Kerr translates it, straining and burning. Kerr contrasts this with Thomas's simpler definition of charity in the Summa as a friendship of man for God. Kerr argues that by comparison to the scriptum's analysis, the, the Summa is sure-footed, elegant, and condensed. The atmosphere is cleared of the imagery of longing and yearning, of being hot and sticky. It is as if the mutual absorption of two lovers in one another had been abandoned in favor of the model of colleagues engaged in a common adventure. A much more civilized picture. In spite of this almost unanimous opinion, though, I've often been struck by Thomas's references to the song in his treatments of charity and the Eucharist. So last year, I undertook a project of collecting every reference to the song in his works, noting the frequency and context of each using the online index to Mysticus. And I discovered that he does refer to the song over 300 times, some verses much more than others, and is familiar with the commentary tradition of interpreting it as a wedding song between Christ and his church. He cites, for instance, Gregory the Great and Bernard of Clairvaux's commentaries, as well as the gloss. By a contextual analysis of these references, I wanted to find out in particular to what extent Thomas's use of the song introduces an element of spiritual eros, of yearning desire, intensity, and fervor into his theology of charity and related matters. Two of his uh, favorite song verses do, I think, begin to raise the spiritual temperature a little bit. And here's where, and uh, now I'm going to refer to the handout. So what I have on the handout are the two texts that I'm going to focus on um, with what I'm calling glosses around the sides of the text. Um, which refer to the Song of Songs in uh, various works of his. And on the back of each page, you'll see uh, translations of uh, the texts that I'm referring to. <clears throat> so the text most obviously related to the Eucharist is Songs 5.1. Thomas most often quotes the last part of the verse, Eat, friends, and drink, and be inebriated, dearest ones. As you can see in glosses 1 to 3 from the commentary on Isaiah and the prologue to the scriptum on the, on the left side, Thomas associates this verse with the spiritual intoxication of the saints enjoying the convivium of heaven. The gloss 1 in Isaiah chapter 25, they're inebriated by the provocation of love, they're watered and inebriated 
um, like Christ's fruitful apple trees uh, with his own fruition. The prologue to the scriptum. In the commentary on John 2, that's gloss 4 on the right, the wedding at Cana, Thomas explains with two quotes from the song that the wine at the wedding symbolizes the charity brought by Christ because like wine, it both intoxicates and heats or gives fervor to the children of God. The heat and inebriation of charity also causes spiritual ecstasy. In the commentary on Psalm 23, gloss 5, Thomas is interpreting the words, how excellent is my chalice that inebriates me. He says, this chalice is the gift of divine love which inebriates. For the drunk person is not in himself, nor does he speak according to himself, but according to the impulse of the wine. So the one who is filled with divine love speaks according to God, for he has been made ecstatic. Song 5.1, eat friends, drink, and be inebriated. Thomas refers to the same idea of ecstasy or being taken out of oneself in his commentary on Psalm 35 and Gloss 6. They, that is the saints, shall be inebriated with the plenty of your house insofar as their desire will be fulfilled above all measure of merit, for drunkenness is a kind of excess. Isaiah 64. The eye has not seen, O God, what you have in store for those who love you. And Song of Songs 5, be inebriated, dearest ones. And those who are drunk are not in themselves, but outside of themselves. He goes on to explain that when the psalmist says, you shall make them drink of the torrent of your pleasure, this is the love of the Holy Spirit, which makes an impetus in the soul like a torrent, producing pleasure and sweetness. He says, just as those who would hold their mouths to a fountain of wine would become inebriated, so those who hold their mouth, that is their desire, to the fountain of life and sweetness are inebriated. Likewise, commenting on the second letter to the Corinthians, if we are transported in mind, it is to God. If we are sober, it is for you. Thomas writes that it is the Holy Spirit who makes one drunk with the love of God and snatches one up to divine things. This reference to ecstasy caused by love can be found in the Summa Theologia too. As Peter Kwasniewski notes, when Thomas discusses the effects of love as a passion in uh, Prima Secundae question 28, he draws from the Dionysian tradition known to him from his commentary on the divine names to include effects that seem to belong more in a treatise on erotic love or mystical prayer than in a summa of theology. Among these are ecstasis or being taken out of one's mind or oneself. Thomas makes the important distinction that while a lower love of concupiscence, as for actual wine, can debase the soul, the higher love of friendship for neighbor or God, that is charity, perfects the soul by raising one up to higher things, making the lover dwell intently on the beloved and will their good, impelled by a desire for union. Remarkably, in question 28, article 5, on whether love is a passion that wounds the lover, Thomas places a different quote from the song in each of the three objections, which all argue that love is corruptive because it causes weakness. I languish with love, song 2-5, it melts, my soul melted when my beloved spoke, Song 5-6, and it burns, its lamps are lamps of fire and flame, Song 8-6. But Thomas responds that these effects of love, softening one's heart and intensifying one's desire, work for the good when one is being perfected and bettered by the love of God. Thomas's allusions to these song texts help us to see 
that for him, charity as friendship with God is not only a collegial relationship. It should make one melt, burn, and be ecstatically drunk now and eternally with the Holy Spirit, the love of God through whom the road to beatitude is open to us, he says in the Summa Contra Gentilis. Not surprisingly then, Thomas refers to Psalm 5-1 multiple times in connection with preparation for and reception of the Eucharist, which is of course the sacrament of charity and a foretaste of heaven. For instance, in his sermon Homo Quidam, where he describes the threefold spiritual refreshment effected by Christ in the Eucharist, the intellect and the affections, he says that Christ prepares for us a banquet of the affections. So in the song it says, eat my friends, that is, here by grace, and be inebriated, dear ones, that is, in the future by glory. That's gloss eight. In his commentary on Matthew, Thomas says that in the words of institution, Christ invites us to receive him in faith and love by eating him, not only spiritually, but also sacramentally, eat friends and drink. Thomas refers again to Song 5.1 in the Summa in Gloss 10, as he explains that in the Eucharist, quote, not only are the habitus of grace and virtues conferred, but they are also excited into act, as in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the charity of Christ urges us. And so by the power of the sacrament, the soul is spiritually refreshed in being delighted and in a certain manner inebriated with the sweetness of the divine goodness. According to Psalm 5, eat friends and drink and be inebriated, dearest ones. So Psalm 5.1 for Thomas, I argue, clearly describes Christ's invitation to his dear friends in the Eucharist to eat and drink him in a loving and inebriating union, an invitation that is ultimately consummated in the ecstasy of heaven. So now I'm going to turn to the next song text, Psalm 8, 6 to 7 on the next page. This is the song text perhaps most cited by Thomas, and it brings out even more what might be called an element of spiritual arrows, a yearning, burning, and urging dimension in his teaching on charity. The text is from chapter 8 of the song. Strong as death is love, jealousy as unyielding as another world. Its lamps are lamps of fire and flame. Many waters cannot extinguish charity, nor floods overwhelm it. I think it's interesting that Thomas refers to this text a number of times in his commentary on Romans, where he treats Paul's climactic rhetorical question at the end of Romans 8, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul's fervent answer that nothing, neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities nor powers, nor present things, nor future things, nor might, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thomas comments that, quote, God bestows great benefits on his holy ones, and when we consider them, such love of Christ burns in our hearts that nothing can quench it. Many waters cannot quench love. That's gloss one in figure two. He explains that Paul means that no might, that is, no strong creature, can separate me from Christ, neither strong fire nor water, because love is as strong as death. This citation of Psalms 8.6 follows a remarkable passage on the strength of Paul's love for Christ, a love that impels him to preach. Quote, 
Paul speaks this way to show how great is the power in him of divine love and to lay everything out before our eyes. For this is the way of lovers, that they cannot hide their love in silence, but assert and reveal it to their close friends and to their beloved, and they cannot confine the flames within their heart. They speak of them frequently, so that by constantly telling about their love, they may gain some solace and obtain some cooling of their immense ardor." Unquote. This passionate declaration gives insight into Thomas's own motivation as a preacher and teacher. The fire of charity not only burns within, but impels the lover of Christ to greater love and service of God and neighbor, because its flames are always active. And so Thomas says in the Summa, Gloss 3, that charity cannot diminish because according to the song, it is like fire. Its lamps, that is the lamps of charity, are lamps of fire and flames. As long as charity remains, it always mounts upwards. Indeed, even when one carries great burdens for the sake of God, love itself is not destroyed, but rather grows greater. Song 8-7, many waters, that is many tribulations, cannot quench charity, Gloss 4. In his commentary on John, Thomas quotes the song several times in connection with this active and inflammatory quality of charity. In chapter five, lecture, lecture six, gloss five, Thomas explains that John the Baptist was a lamp burning and blazing brightly because he was inflamed with the ardor of charity. He says that the blazing of fire signifies love for three reasons. First, because fire is the most active of all bodies, so too is the warmth of charity so much so that nothing can withstand its impetus. The charity of Christ urges us. Secondly, because just as fire being most volatile causes great unrest, so also this love of charity makes a person restless until he achieves his objective. Its lamps are lamps of fire and flame. Thirdly, just as fire is inclined to move upward, so too is charity, so much so that it joins us to God. In glosses six and seven too, he says with reference to song eight six, that the burning of charity of Christ urges us to be obedient and that the exceeding ardor of Mary Magdalene's love incited her to hurry to the tomb at daybreak. As you may have noticed, Thomas often links these song texts with 2 Corinthians 5.14, as in his commentary on 2 Corinthians itself in gloss eight. Referring to charity's lamps of fire in the song, he comments on the text that the charity of Christ urges us like a goad to procure the salvation of our neighbor, stirring us by the Holy Spirit. And such a spiritual fire of love, Thomas says in a Summa article on devotion, is the effect of contemplation. He quotes Psalm 38, in my meditation, a fire shall flame forth, a text he also uses where he describes the invisible mission of the Holy Spirit in the infused gift of charity. The final piece of this picture then is that this burning love born of, of contemplation, fed in the Eucharist and bearing fruit for the salvation of souls comes from the Holy Spirit, conforming us to Christ as friend and urging and leading us on as children of God. Thomas refers to the Spirit's agency in connection with these song texts multiple times for instance, in his commentary on the Psalms and on John, glosses 9 to 11. The Holy Spirit not only inebriates, it ignites, it warms and nourishes the heat of love, it stimulates and elevates the heart with fervor and warmth. Thomas uses a whole series of fiery words. 
Now, what difference does it make whether Thomas incorporates an element of Eros into his theology of charity in the Eucharist as a sacrament of charity? My point is not simply that Aquinas isn't such a cold fish after all. Other scholars have identified an affective element, especially in Thomas's mature writings on prayer and scripture. But for Thomas, the fervor of charity does make an efficacious difference, not only in the degree to which it transforms the lover into the likeness of the beloved, that is the extent to which it deifies the soul, but also in the meritorious activity that charity prompts one to do for one's own salvation and that of others. So in the second half of my talk, I want to put this in the context of Thomas's theology of charity and deification. Thomas does, of course, famously identify charity as friendship with God. In the Summa, so in this Secunda Secunda, question 23, article one, he says that charity can be called a true friendship of mutual benevolence because it's founded on God's communication of his happiness to us by giving us fellowship with his son. It's less often noted that Thomas also defines charity in the Summa as an infused virtue that is a supernatural participation by the well in the Holy Spirit. These two definitions are related, of course. The Holy Spirit is the bond of love between Father and Son, by whom the Father also causally loves creatures and draws them to his goodness. A participation in the Holy Spirit by charity likens the will to the Holy Spirit, directing and uniting the will to God as its object and to others for God's sake. This is how it brings us to share the Son's own beatitude. Charity is the theological virtue which gives a foretaste of this beatitude even in this life. And of course, in its perfection, it constitutes uh, the life of heaven. On an ecclesial level, and especially as an effect of the Eucharist, charity is the glue uniting Christ's mystical body in fellowship with the Son, a communion made perfect in glory. Thomas's identification of charity as a participation of the Holy Spirit flows from his definition of grace earlier in the Summa as a participation of the divine nature. Grace is a created habitus that deifies the very essence of the soul, quote, bestowing a participation in the divine nature by a participated likeness. Thomas argues that God alone can deify just as only fire can set things on fire. Question 112, Article 2. The participated likeness of the divine nature that grace bestows is a truly Trinitarian one, perfecting the image of the Trinity that already constitutes the soul. By nature, the soul images the divine persons of word and love in its intellect and will. Grace's elevation of the soul to a supernatural likeness of the divine nature takes place by the will being more perfectly likened to the Holy Spirit by the infused virtue of charity and the intellect to the word by infused wisdom. Charity and wisdom flowing from grace not only give us a likeness to the divine persons, but allow us to possess and enjoy them as they're sent by the Father to dwell within us. I think my all-time favorite text in the Summa is uh, in the Prima Pars, question 43, article five, add two, on the invisible divine missions. Everybody here has a favorite Summa text, right? Uh, so Thomas says, 
The soul is made like to God by grace. Hence, for a divine person to be sent to anyone by grace, there must be a likening of the soul to the divine person who is sent by some gift of grace. Because the Holy Spirit is love, the soul is assimilated to the Holy Spirit by the gift of charity. Hence, the mission of the Holy Spirit is according to the mode of charity. Whereas the Son is the word, not any sort of word, but one who breathes forth love. Thus the Son is sent, not in accordance with every and any kind of intellectual perfection, but according to the intellectual illumination which breaks forth into the affection of love. Thus Augustine plainly says, the Son is sent whenever he is known and perceived by anyone. Now perception implies a certain experimental knowledge, and this is properly called wisdom, sapientia, as it were, a savored knowledge. According to Sirach 6.23, the wisdom of doctrine is according to her name. One thing I think is really important about Thomas's doctrine of deification is that this graced ontological likening to the divine persons is also, by bestowing an infused created habitus, it also makes one into a genuine instrumental principle of supernatural activity, guided and led by the prompting of the Holy Spirit's auxiliary or actual grace as a child of God. Thomas says that the image is perfected especially in act. Using language that parallels the question on the missions, Thomas says that the mind images the Trinity most when, quote, from the knowledge we possess, by actual thought we form an internal word and thence break forth into love, especially when that word and love are born from the knowledge of God as object. So the divine indwelling leads to participation in divine mission. As charity is enkindled and our knowledge of God in faith and wisdom breathes forth love for God and others for God's sake, we act in meritorious ways as Christ's adopted brethren for the salvation of souls on our journey to beatitude. Now charity increases, Thomas says, by a divine gift as the Holy Spirit is more and more participated by the will. So the more charity we have, the more we're deified. As an infused virtue, charity does not grow directly by our exercise of its acts, but every act of charity in which we cooperate with the movement of grace disposes us to receive this gift of increase and act again in charity, making us break out into an act of more fervent love, he says. Here we saw Thomas referring to the song. As charity is enkindled by the Holy Spirit with our cooperation, it grows more and more because its lamps are lamps of fire and flames. So enkindled into act, charity always increases. It's in the context of growth and charity and therefore deification that I think the element of Eros in Thomas's theology of charity makes a difference, especially in his thought about how the Eucharist, because Christ is truly present in it, enkindles our charity. The Eucharist was commonly called the sacrament of charity in the Middle Ages after Augustine, but for Thomas, this idea has a particular Christological density. That is the sacrament of Christ's, it is the sacrament of Christ's charity that enkindles our own desire, urging us into Christ-like action. This is true especially because the Eucharist contains Christ himself so that worthy sacramental reception brings one into body and soul union with the word breathing forth love made flesh.
While all sacraments supply the power of the passion, Thomas argues in the Summa that the Eucharist is, quote, the sacrament of Christ's passion, according as one is made perfect in union with Christ who suffered. And that is why it is the sacrament of charity, which is the bond of perfection. Earlier in the Tertia Pars of the Summa, question 46, Thomas gives as the first reason for the fittingness of Christ's passion that, quote, man knows by this how much God loves him and is stirred to love him in return, and in this is the perfection of human salvation. Likewise, Thomas thinks that Christ's real presence in the Eucharist is fitting, especially because it manifests Christ's charity out of which he suffered and by which he won our redemption, and this elicits our own love in return. The Eucharist is a sacrament of charity both, quote, figuratively and effectively, he says. That is, it is both the sign of God's charity in Christ and the cause of Christ-like charity in us. How exactly does the Eucharist cause charity in us? Thomas thinks it does so in a twofold way. Christ substantially present efficaciously confers the infused gift of grace and charity on us, and his presence also elicits or enkindles our acts of charity in response. Thomas's understanding of how this works is shaped by his thoroughly Chalcedonian Christology, in which Christ's humanity is an instrument of his divinity. In the third part, question 79, article one, Thomas quotes Cyril of Alexandria's commentary on Luke to argue that the Eucharist causes grace because in it we receive Christ's life-giving flesh. Quote, Cyril says on Luke 22, God's life-giving word by uniting himself with his own flesh made it to be productive of life. For it was becoming that he should be united somehow with bodies through his sacred flesh and precious blood, which we receive in a life-giving blessing in the bread and wine. In the same article, he uses a striking image taken from John Damascene's De Fide Orthodoxa, quote, This sacrament confers grace spiritually together with the virtue of charity. So Damascene compares this sacrament to the burning coal which Isaiah saw. For a live ember is not simply wood, but wood united to fire. So also the bread of communion is not simple bread, but bread united to divinity. In this text, Damascene, drawing from a common patristic metaphor, is likening the Eucharist to the burning and purifying coal taken from the altar of the temple and placed on the lips of the prophet Isaiah. Damascene follows the tradition of Cyril as he explains that the coal of the Eucharist burns with divinity because, quote, it is the deified body of the Lord itself which communicates deification to others. Thomas uses the metaphor of a burning coal or iron heated in fire more widely throughout the Summa and in his other writings to express the notion of participation in the divine perfections and especially the participation in the divine nature by grace which flows from Christ's deified humanity to his members. And using Damascene's image here then, he's indicating that it is especially through communion with the words deified flesh in the Eucharist that one receives deifying grace and charity. Thomas refers to this idea again 
in his commentary on the Bread of Life discourse in John 6. When Christ says, the bread I will give is my flesh, quote, he shows that even his flesh is life-giving, for it is an instrument of his divinity. Thus, since an instrument acts by virtue of its agent, then just as the divinity of Christ is life-giving, so too his flesh gives life, as Damascene says, because of the word to which it is united." Unquote. The Eucharist efficaciously transmits the deifying power of Christ's flesh, uniting those who eat it to the Godhead by transform transforming them into what they eat. For Thomas says, quote, this is a food capable of making man divine and inebriating him with divinity, unquote. As the ultimate benefit and purpose of the word's incarnation, is that God became man so that we might become God. So in the Eucharist, we are deified by the abiding presence of the incarnate word. Even though Thomas shows here a strong instrumental realism, emphasizing the objective life-giving power of the word's deified flesh in the Eucharist, he does not neglect the secondary but necessary subjective role of the recipient in engaging the sacrament spiritually. As in his treatments of other sacraments, Thomas gives full weight to the role of human response in the appropriation of divine life. We have seen that he quotes Psalm 5.1 to argue that in the Eucharist, grace and the virtues are not only infused, but quote, excited into act, as in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the charity of Christ urges us so that the soul is spiritually refreshed in being delighted and in a certain manner inebriated with the sweetness of the divine goodness." Unquote. And the more charity is excited into act, the more it disposes for further increase and brings about all of charity's effects. In the subsequent articles of question 79, Thomas gives some of them. The Eucharist satisfies for sin, according, he says, to the measure of one's devotion and fervor and it lessens concupiscence. It gives spiritual refreshment and delight. It unites one to Christ and his members so as to receive the benefits of the Lord's passion and offer efficacious prayers for others in the body. And he points out here, interestingly, I think, especially in question 83, on the right of the Eucharist, how important solemnity and uh, a sort of prayerful celebration of the Eucharist is to increasing the devotion of those who take part um, because that affects, really, the, the, the amount of the grace that uh, they can appropriate um, to themselves. So we can add to these the effects of active charity, which Thomas discusses elsewhere. The fire of charity inflames and incites us to acts of love. It merits beatitude and disposes one more and more for a greater share in glory. Thomas quotes John Damascene again in the said contra of question 79, article 8, where he discusses whether venial sins hinder the sacrament's effect. Quote, Damascene says, the fire of that desire which is in us being taken up from this coal, that is from the fiery enkindling of this sacrament, will burn up our sins and illuminate our hearts that by participation of the divine fire we may be kindled into fire and deified." Unquote. The distraction of venial sins can hinder this fire of our desire and so diminish the effect of the sacrament. Although one may still obtain grace and charity, quote, 
a certain actual refreshment of spiritual sweetness will be lacking. Our subjective response to the Lord's loving and deifying presence in the Eucharist can hinder its effects in us. Or, energized by a God-directed eros, we can let the Spirit set us on fire with charity's urging. Thomas refers to the same text of Damascene in one other place in the Summa's Questions on the Eucharist. He remarks that Damascene says this sacrament has the name of communion because we communicate with Christ through it, both because we participate in his flesh and divinity and because we communicate with and are united to one another through it." Unquote. The ultimate effect of this sacrament of charity is unity. The deification effected by reception of the burning coal of Christ's true body and blood not only transforms individuals by setting them on fire with charity, but as a result has the effect of ecclesial communion. Here's my conclusion. At the end of his commentary on John, Thomas compares the Eucharist to the lakeside breakfast Christ cooks for his friends. Christ prepares three things for the church's banquet, hot coals, fish, and bread. First, the hot coals of charity. Quote, Christ carried these burning coals from heaven to earth. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. I came to cast fire upon the earth. Likewise, he prepared the fish laid over the burning coals, which is Christ himself. For the roasted fish is the suffering Christ. It sounds better in Latin. Non piscis asus Christus passus. Who is laid out over the burning coals when out of the fiery heat of his love for us, he is immolated on the cross. Ephesians 5, 1, 2. Christ loved us and handed himself over for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Likewise, be imitators of God as his beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us." Unquote. The hot coals of Christ's own charity light the fire of his Holocaust on the cross. As a result, Thomas says, we receive the bread which nourishes us, that is, himself. Christ offers his deified humanity to us as the burning coal glowing with charity, transformed into bread baked in a furnace of sacrificial love, so that we will desire and imitate him in our own self-offering. Does St. Thomas incorporate an element of spiritual eros into his understanding of charity as friendship with God? I argue, yes. And I think he may have derived it from his reading of the Song of Songs. But Thomas's eros operates in a distinctively Dominican mode. He does not develop a spousal mysticism like St. Bernard. The wedding of Christ and his members takes place more on the cross than in a mystical embrace. Yet the bride in Thomas's song is intoxicated and rushed onward by the fire of a love kindled by union with Christ in the Eucharist and inflamed by the Holy Spirit, which nothing can extinguish. With an ardor born of contemplation, she ecstatically longs to see the face of God, not alone, but in the company of all who will be friends of God. 
through her eager cooperation with Charity's urging. In comparison to many of his peers, it cannot be said that Thomas's theology of charity is notably hot and sticky, or affective and experiential. But it glows deeply with passionate love nonetheless, a fervent desire for union with God and the salvation of souls, because to be Christ's friend, made into his other self, is to share in his charity and so in the burning intention of his will. Thomas may not have spoken of the song as he lay dying, but his biographers tell us that he did ardently and openly profess his faith and love to Christ in the Eucharist, receiving him with devotion and tears. As Thomas wrote of Paul, that other lover of Christ, for this is the way of lovers, that they cannot hide their love in silence, but assert and reveal it to their close friends and to their beloved because they cannot confine the flames within their heart. Thank you.